0: Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Let's Read the Bible. I'm Evan. And I'm Aaron. And this is a podcast where we read the Bible together every year and talk about what we learned along the way. If you'd like to follow along, you can download the YouVersion Bible app and look up the Grove Church in Marysville, Washington. You'll find our plan right there. Also, we have the plan available on our website, grove.church. And if you're jumping in and joining us for the first time today, we are on day 15.
1: Yes, day 15 and welcome to the podcast. So glad you're joining us. Uh, one of the things that you should need to know is we enjoy taking time as much as we can week over week, answering any questions from our dear listeners. Uh, and we would love for you to send in a question if it comes to mind as you're reading, listening along, or just another avenue of thought. And when it comes to biblical questions, we would love to answer them. There's three ways to send us those questions. One is an email. To, the email address is info Uh, The other way is direct message through two different platforms. We have a Facebook page. We are The Grove Church in Washington State, as Evan already said. Or we are on Instagram as well. Our handle is the Uh You can DM us there as well. Uh, and so I, it's, it's a fun week because I actually get to start us off this week. Normally, Ooh. if you're part of the podcast and the listenership, part of the podcast family, I guess we can call it. Uh, you know, Evan normally launches us off. And so today I'm wrapping up the book of Genesis because that's what we're wrapping up this week. And then halfway through the week, we actually jump into the book of Job. No, I'm just kidding. Book of Job. Great book. Uh, and if you know anything about Evan, uh, he uh, this is an easy one for me to give to him because he wrote his own little book on Job as well. And it's trying to get published. So if you are a publisher... Let me just tell you, you should publish this book because it's a big win. So
0: I've told myself that I'm willing to be rejected. I, I said a number of rejections before I just self-published, so I, we haven't gotten there yet. There's still hope. There's still a door. Uh, but so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to walk us through the end of Genesis, and then
1: Evan will walk us through uh, the beginning of Job. Uh, and so we pick up in chapter 40 this week, uh, where we left off, you remember, last week, Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers, the big jerks, uh, and then picked up by Potiphar, who's a ruler in Pharaoh's uh, government structure, if you will. Uh, And then Potiphar's wife uh, wanted to sleep with Joseph. Joseph was a man of integrity, resisted, resisted, resisted. And and we're told that Joseph is very handsome. And he's very handsome. uh, Ruggishly good looks. And then he was thrown in prison. So we pick up in chapter 40 where he was in prison. uh, And while he's in prison, uh, Pharaoh's cupbearer and his baker are also thrown into prison. We don't really understand or have the context why they were thrown in. All we know is that Joseph, remember also, that he was put in in kind of a leadership position within the prison because the favor of God was still upon him, even though he's imprisoned. Um, So the baker and the cupbearer are thrown into prison. And the candlestick maker. That's not true at all. That would have been fun. Don't though. lie, bro. Pharaoh's
0: Pharaoh's are talking baker. about God's word.
1: There's no <laughs> lies. Um, and so Joseph, uh, being the overseer of all the prisoners, both the cupbearer and the, the baker have... Uh, now I'm going to say candlestick maker, you jerk. Um, it's, it's in your head. <laughs> uh, they have dreams. And so Joseph uh, is someone who God uses to interpret dreams. Uh, and so he hears about these dreams, and he first goes to the cupbearer and says, well, tell me your dream. I'll interpret it for you. Cupbearer tells him the dream. Uh, it ends up being uh, that he's going to be restored to his position. I'm going to let you read the details, but uh, he gets restored to his position. If is a favorable outcome of the dream is what it sounds like. So the then the the baker's like, oh, sweet. This could be a good thing. Uh, not for the baker. And so Dude. Joseph interprets the dream uh, of the baker, which means the baker's going to lose his head in three days.
0: This is like one of the biggest bummer sections. It's so true. Because it's just like the guy's like, oh, awesome. I had a really similar dream. And Joseph's like, oh, yeah, yours means you're going to die.
1: Yep. It's just like, oh. Uh, and so Joseph Joseph interprets both their dreams. And he says, hey, I have one request. And he says it to both of them. When you go back to before Pharaoh, will you just mention me? I'm looking for some favor. I was wrongly imprisoned. Will you mention
0: that to Pharaoh? In essence, he just wants to get out of jail. Okay, uh, he's an innocent man. I'd imagine the baker would have other things on his mind as he goes to his execution. Like by the by, the way, before wait, wait, guys, before my head's gone. Hey. Joseph got my dream right. Just want everyone to know that. <laughs> like, I, Joseph proved me right. I'd almost be like, if I was the big, i you know, screw that guy. I'm not giving <laughs> yeah. him anything. It's not his fault that that's the, what's actually fault, gonna happen. It's not his fault, but
1: still. You know. um, and the best news in the world is they both forget. Uh, so True. Joseph stays in prison for a few more years. Uh, but then as we read, it's gonna shift out of Genesis chapter 40 and jump over into Genesis chapter 35. So you're gonna backtrack a bit uh, and read two verses in Genesis chapter 5. Uh, and this is just a glimpse into the death of Isaac. Um and which is just because, remember, the plan is a chronological plan. So it's going in the events that they and the order of the events that they happen. So actually, Isaac dies while Joseph is in prison. In Egypt,
0: uh, so that's why it backtracks for for a minute. Which, which I have,
1: I never picked up on that before, just to be honest with you. Right,
0: so. I mentioned it last week that going off of Sunday school, I guess you're never told explicitly that Isaac dies right after it's Jacob true. leaves, but that is very much like we don't ever talk about Isaac again. And so as a kid, I always believed that like yeah, he's blind, he's old. His last thing he does is he blesses Jacob instead and then, of Esau. Yeah. And then he, and then he dies, but you find out, no, he lives he's like he sees his family. Reuni- well, sees is the wrong word, but he, uh, he's oh, around too soon. That's too, it's around while his family gets yeah. reunified.
1: Well, we see the same thing with Israel as well. At the end of Israel's life, he has this big moment and we'll get to that in a little bit. Spoilers. Because it's the end of Genesis. So, uh, so two years later, chapter 41 picks back up two years later after uh, the baker lost his head and the cupbearer was restored. Uh, we find that Pharaoh has a dream. Joseph's still in prison. Uh, The dream consists of seven healthy cows being eaten by seven seven skinny and starved cows, uh, followed by another dream of seven uh, heads of grain that are healthy and plump, swallowed up by seven shriveled heads of grain, Pharaoh calls on all his magicians and all his wise men and says, Hey, interpret this dream for me because it's troubling. It woke me up in the middle of the night. I couldn't sleep. I need you to give me peace of mind so that way I can go back to sleep. Uh, And no one can interpret it. And lo and behold, the cupbearer comes back into the story. Whoa. And the cupbearer realizes that he's like, Don't, totally
0: forgot. Interpreting dreams. Where have I heard of that? I've seen that before. before.
1: Uh, And so he apologized to Pharaoh, which I thought was pretty interesting too. Like he apologized to Pharaoh, forgive me for I've realized what I've done. I've forgotten. Because the reality is the reason why it's such a big deal and he's apologizing is because he gave his word. They said that they would. Uh, That was the implication in the text is that they would remember Joseph in front of Pharaoh. So Pharaoh calls for for Joseph. Joseph comes, uh, is brought out of prison. He then has to become presentable to Pharaoh because you can't come in like rags and a beard and all this hair because the Egyptians are... you're bald. I don't know. Like you don't. And I, It took me a while to, it clicked as well. So uh, Joseph, at this point, his head was shaved. They put makeup on him because you're supposed to be...
0: Yeah, you got, you got, you got to look
1: the, good. You're for supposed the, to look good, yeah. Look good for the big guy. So he, he shows up uh, and Pharaoh says, hey, I hear you can interpret James. And this is where we pick up in chapter 41, verse 15 and 16. It says, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I've had a dream. And no one can interpret it. But I've heard it said about you that you can hear a dream and interpret it. I love Joseph's response right here. This is the best thing in the world. Because I try and stop for a moment and think about Pharaoh's response to the first sentence Joseph says. Joseph's answer was, I am not able to. And so I imagine like that the, the cupbearer talks to him of, hey, I know a guy. He can do it. Uh, Joseph's like, yeah, I can't interpret your dream.
0: Pharaoh gives the side eye to the cupbearer and the cupbearer is like, freaking,
1: Hey Joseph, (laughs) Joseph, bail me out. Um, But then Joseph continues on and says, it is God who will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. And So then Joseph interprets the dream. Uh, We find uh, he doesn't, he doesn't just interpret the dream. uh, He also gives advice of how to manage the seven good years of, of harvest where they're in essence, seven good years of harvest followed by seven bad years of of famine. Uh, So he gives advice uh, to Pharaoh about what he should do. Not saying you need to do this, but say, hey, you should have someone set in charge to manage the the, the, the storehouses, to manage the food, to be able to ration it all out. Uh, and Pharaoh says, hey, you're the guy. Uh, so Joseph is taken out of prison, made up to look beautiful like an Egyptian and exalted into the second highest command in
0: all of Egypt. Well, it's also a big deal too, because Egypt is kind of built off of the regularity of the Nile. Like it, the, the, reason, Absolutely. the reason that Egypt is able to be such an advanced civilization before most of the other parts of the world is because they have essentially their own irrigation system <laughs> yes. built in where it floods every year with regularity exactly in the same spot. Produces fertile soil yep. to build crops on. And so we can assume we don't know exactly what happens to cause the famine, but it's very reasonable to say that like the Egyptians would, they might not have been prepared for moments where all of a sudden something goes wonky for a few yeah. years. Global warming probably caused it. war. just kidding. <laughs> it, was, uh, it was, you know, the ice age is coming to an end. Everything's <laughs> heating up. It's just a whole deal. Uh, yeah.
1: And, and it's interesting because even at this point, like Joseph is 30 years old. Remember he was 17 when he had the dreams. His brother hated him uh, and threw him into, into slavery, um, sold him into slavery. So Pharaoh exalts Joseph into the second command overall. No one is above Joseph. Um, we 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 move to chapter 42 where you'll see jo- Jacob, J- Joseph's father, uh, who at this point thinks Joseph is dead. There's no other indicator. Right. There's no, a, a Joseph, my son is dead. Even his brothers think he's just nowhere. He's either dead or he's just a nobody, some slave, poor slave working for the man and and just in rags and, and not doing well for, in life at all. Uh, so Jacob, hearing there's grain in Egypt, sends his ten sons. Now, mind you, at this point he had eleven sons, not including Joseph, because Benjamin was born. Uh, and I had this thought. I actually triggered a thought when you brought up yesterday about not yesterday, last week about Leah and how Jacob was laid to to rest in the cave with Leah mm-hmm. in the in the cave. Yeah, um, dude, Rachel died on the way to to settling. So when she gave birth to to Joseph. No Benjamin, sorry. Mm-hmm. She died in labor, and so they buried her along the path. They buried her along the way to where they were going to settle, I think. right. Um, so part of the reason why Jacob couldn't be buried with Rachel is because she was not buried in the in the cave of uh, his his family
0: and his ancestors. Well, I guess, but they could have uh they could have brought her body there because I believe that's what happens with Leah is that when she dies, I, 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 could it's, be, it's I very could be, possible, very possible. I'm and, almost positive. They don't die at the same time. I believe no. Leah dies first. And so what would, if I remember correctly, and i no, so I'm curious about that. Yeah. We'll have to, we'll have to think about that, but anyways, all that to say, uh, Jacob, they,
1: where was I at now? I got to sidetrack. Um, so Benjamin was born after Joseph was sold into slavery. Um, and, and so then Jacob's 12, 10 sons, Show up to Egypt to buy food. Jacob immediately recognizes them um, when he sees them. He recognizes them, uh, but they didn't recognize him. And this is, goes back to what I already said. And I actually this this took a little bit of reading for me to even for it to click. Like at this point, Joseph is bald, he has eye makeup on, and he's in expensive clothes. Nothing yeah, like they remembered him. him. So they didn't have any idea who he was, and it's been years. And he speaks Egyptian. He doesn't speak. The, the Hebrew Aramaic oh, that they sure, were speaking, yeah. right? So he's speaking through an interpreter. So the, the, the brothers of Joseph have no clue. They understand, but he has to keep appearances. And he's also kind of curious to know where they're at. So he treats them harshly. He speaks to them harshly, uh, speaks to them and treats them like strangers, um, because he maintains, uh, appearances, but it's not out of anger. And I thought this was really good to, to understand too. He's testing to see if there was a change. Are they of humble posture? Are they still like they were when they sold me into slavery? Um, And by the way that he, so Joseph accuses them as being spies and the sons reply, no, we're not spies. We were sent by our father. We are all sons of one man. We're 12 sons, one who no longer lives. And it's small apples compared to other nations and other groups of people. Gideon, for example, had 70 sons. So they weren't some big uh, family clan. They were kind of small apples in comparison. So they're, they're validating their, uh, their size and their there's no way. In essence, saying there's no way we could be spies. There's only twelve of us from one guy. Oh, that's true. <laughs> we're not, we're not a large clan of people. We're not a large posse. We're not a scout team looking to inhabit the land. So they're making a justification for their their small nature and just they're here to buy food. They're just lit, coming to buy food. Joseph imprisons them for three days and says, "Listen, if you really do have another brother, no one's leaving till he comes. So you better send for him." Or no, he says one of you can go and bring back the rest of you are going to prison. They're in prison for three days, talking, concerned, not sure what's going to happen. Joseph comes back, says, "Hey, I fear God," so only one of you has to stay, and he sends them all away. It's Simeon, right? Is he the one who has to I stay? believe so? I don't, I don't remember off the top of my head now, which is weird because he's the second born. I just remember thinking that was odd. Yeah, so Simeon stays. The other nine brothers go back. They on the way they find that um, their silver was returned to them. And they freak out and they actually kind of blame God. Like, God, why would this happen? Why would you let this happen to us? Um, So they continue on the path. They return home, inform Jacob of everything. And Jacob says, Nope, Benjamin's not going. I'd rather go down to Sheol than Benjamin go to Egypt. Well, go to chapter 43. We see the grain runs out. (laughs) Uh And so then Jacob says, Hey, you need to go back and buy more. There's kind of this like angry moment. Uh, between the brother or the sons of Jacob and him saying, we can't go back unless Benjamin comes with us. And you say, Benjamin won't come. They go back and forth. Jacob finally relents and Judah sticks his neck out for, uh, for Benjamin says, I I will bring him back on my life. So Benjamin goes with his brothers.
0: It is all I was going to say too. It's, it's kind of messed up that Jacob is full on. Like, yeah, let Simeon rot in prison forever. (laughs) I'm not sending Benjamin like, okay, well, don't well remember though.
1: He's playing his Benjamin favorites. is the is the is the son of who? The only son of Rachel. Rachel. And Ooh. he already lost Joseph, yep. whom his favor was, because Rachel was his favorite wife. All of that to say. Come on, Jacob, get your head on your shoulders. So then they they're finally told to go by Jacob. They bring back double the silver to make up for the silver that they were given back. They also bring gifts in essence to make peace and say, hey, we we don't know how this happened. This was not our intent. We didn't want to steal from you. They show up, they're brought into Joseph's house. Joseph's not around, but the steward of Joseph is there. He's the one who since manages the house, the slave for Joseph. They have a conversation about the, hey, they talk to the steward say, hey, by the way, I don't know how this happened, but our silver was put back in our bags from the last time we were here. And the steward says, hey, maybe it was God who did it because I received your silver, I know. So in essence, he vets and verify, I know that you gave me silver. Uh, and then Joseph shows up and meets Benjamin for the first time. And when he meets Benjamin and he sees his brothers and meets Benjamin, he's overwhelmed with with emotion and he immediately runs out of the room crying and he can't let, he doesn't want anybody to see him after he composes himself. He comes back, they eat. uh, And because Egyptians didn't eat with Hebrews, they were separate tables and all the food was brought to almost, it feels like Thanksgiving dinner to me or like a holiday dinner. Like there's the kiddie table. Then there's the adult table. (laughs) The food is all at the adult table and the kids get served. You don't get the nice glasses with the apple cider. Uh, so then it says that in scripture, it says that uh, Joseph's brothers were fed f- and they were actually seated from their s- position from the oldest to youngest, which was kind of a, like, how do you know that? The brothers were talking amongst themselves. It says Benjamin got like four times, I think it was four times as much food as the other brothers. Um, so there's almost like this weird little like, what's going on? But okay. Um, so they eat and then uh, then they get up, they want to get um, uh, and then joseph sends them on their way they get the grain chapter 44 they start heading back they stop with and it says with as much grain as they can carry so it wasn't even a portion of grain they got were given as much grain as they could give they then were also given back their silver as well same thing has happened last time but then joseph gets a little little sneaky he puts his cup the one that he drinks from uh in benjamin's bag and so as the the brothers are leaving Joseph ch- tells the steward, hey, chase him down and find my cup. And he knows right where the cup is. Uh, so they show up. The steward says, so, you guys stole the cup. And the brothers are like, no, we wouldn't have done that. No such thing. They all pull their bags down. And, it's, and they said, we'll all go to prison if it's found with us. And the steward like, that's a great idea. But no, only the one who has the cup is going to prison. Benjamin has the cup in his bag. He's taken hostage or prisoner. All the brothers go back and they stand pleading before Joseph again. They go back to his house. Judah and his brothers uh, go to Joseph and plead for him to be returned. Judah asks actually to take his place uh, because he promised Jacob that he would return Benjamin. And this is this is actually a really powerful moment because uh, Judah. it was Judah's idea to sell Joseph into slavery. Reuben's idea was not to kill him, but Judah's idea was to sell him into sa- slavery. Since we shouldn't kill him, let's sell him as they saw the Ishmaelites. And so they sold him into slavery. That's what led to this whole thing. Chapter 45, we see Joseph can't handle it anymore. Uh, he tells all of his servants and stewards to leave them alone together, and then he reveals who he is. He says this in chapter 45. It says, Joseph could no longer keep his composure in front of all of his attendants. So he called out, send everyone away from me. No one was with him when he revealed his identity to his brothers. But he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it, and also Pharaoh's household heard it. That's a big deal. He's, he's wailing uh, out of... Out of not just grief, but release, like relief. And my brothers, I've seen my family, uh, is a huge moment. It's a powerful moment. Uh, and Joseph said to his brothers, I'm Joseph. Is my father still living? But they could not answer him because they were terrified in his presence. Remember, they don't recognize him still. It's very reminiscent of Jacob and Esau meeting again. Yes, absolutely. Uh, so you see this powerful moment. Verse four says, Then Joseph said to his brothers, Please come near me. Because the other side, too, is they keep their distances. They, they, So they can only see from distance. Joseph is, draws them near. He says, I'm Joseph, your brother, the one you sold into Egypt. And now don't be grieved or angry with yourselves for selling me because God sent me ahead of you to preserve life. For the famine has been in these lands the last two years. Now, mind you, there's still five more years coming. And there will be five more. He just says it. More, more without plowing or harvesting. God sent me ahead to establish you as a remnant within the land and to keep you alive by great deliverance. Therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh, Lord of his entire house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. So you see this exchange between Joseph and his brothers. Then he says to bring Jacob back. Uh, and so they they work to return to get Jacob and bring him back home to, after Pharaoh provides abundantly. This is pretty remarkable too. Pharaoh tells him, hey, go. He finds out that his his brothers are there. He says, hey, bring Jacob back. And only bring what you need. Don't worry about what you need to live. Don't worry about tents. Don't worry about all of the stuff that's essential. Just bring back what you need: the people and your livestock uh, and clothes. We will provide everything else. In other words, Egypt is going to give you housing and lodging and provide a place for you to, for your for your livestock. We're going to cover all those things. You just bring all the, the the bodies and people here. And that probably ever won't. That won't go south ever. No, never. Not at all. <laughs> I'll be fine. Um. So they did. So they return, um, and it was pretty powerful and incredible to see. And again, it shows the favor of God on Joseph's life. With Pharaoh, we see in uh, chapter forty-six, Jacob is told Joseph Joseph is alive, and of God's provision, uh, which is pretty remarkable. Joseph couldn't, or J- Jacob couldn't believe it at first. Um, and then you see it jumps into a genealogy of God, Jacob's sons. And then the arrival of Egypt um, as shepherds, they are given favor once more because shepherds are detestable to Egyptians. Um, And so Joseph prepped his brothers. Hey, when you come before Pharaoh, when you come before them, tell them that we're shepherds. You'll be able to settle in any part of the land. We'll settle you in Goshen because it's a fertile place. It's a great place for livestock. Uh, and so Jacob then is brought before Pharaoh. Pharaoh welcomes him um, and helps Joseph settle his family in Egypt, gives him the choicest lands, finds out that they're shepherds. I don't like being around shepherds. So go tend the flocks away from Egypt, away from like <laughs> the main hub of Egypt, uh, and then establish your living there. Uh, and so Joseph goes and does that, and then he heads back to live in Pharaoh's house to continue his rulership. Um, we see in chapter 47, the famine continues and gets more severe. Uh, people don't have any more money because they used it all to buy grain, so they start selling their livestock to barter for more food. Uh, then another year goes by, and then they're out of food again, so that they don't have any livestock, they don't have anything to barter with, but their property and their lives. And so the people then eventually become slaves, indentured servants uh, for Pharaoh, where they are farming land, and they're to give 20% of their yield back to Pharaoh, which is a pretty big deal. And so we see all of the land becomes Pharaoh's, uh, belongs to Egypt now, um, and all of the people are serving Pharaoh to produce few food for him. Um, Israel, who's also Jacob. And this is the interesting thing too, um, and I and I haven't dug into it a lot, but it's in, in these specific chapters, you see a lot of jumping back and forth between J- being called Jacob and being called Israel, being called Jacob and being called Israel. Even God does it. Hmm. god even calls out saying jacob jacob versus israel and so it's really interesting in a nuance there um and whether that's it's got to be intentional uh, but i just thought it was really interesting to kind of navigate that that like awkwardness i feel like at times because is it jacob or is it israel i don't really know um it's a little bit of both i suppose apparently so uh so we see uh you see Jacob's life coming to an end. He calls for Joseph and asks for a promise uh, to be made about where he gets buried. This is where he says, if, if you're going to, if you're, well, do what I ask, put your hand under my thigh. Uh, it's, we talked about the inner thigh covenant, I think a couple weeks ago. No, it's just a, just a uh, thing. It's just
0: a thing they did. Weird thing. Uh,
1: and so he says, I'll bury you where you want to be buried. Uh, and then in chapter 48, we have this incredible moment uh, where J- Jacob is recounting God's promise to make him fruitful and numerous. Um, which this was kind of a fun little moment for me. I, as I'm reading this, this last week, uh, I really was kind of ca- like not caught off guard, but like, man, I never thought about that before. But the, the, the part of like Jacob's recounting is, Hey, God promised that I will be fruitful and numerous that my descendants, that I will, I will be a father of nations that promise this, it was passed on from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, um, and it was already happening between Judah having married into a different nation and creating a separate nation that's still connected to God's God's line, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, it was really profound to me to see that God had already started establishing the father of many nations uh, to being fruitful and numerous. And so I thought that was really cool that even before uh, really things unfolded, history continued to unfold, you saw the fulfillment of God's promises happening. Much like Joseph or Abraham's, the the anchor fulfillment of the cave that he bought, Uh and And to be buried in was a land it was a, was a cave in Canaan. Uh, was a, a tomb and cave in that he bought. So you just see these cool moments where God's just continue to unfold his promises in the moment, but also throughout history. Um, Jacob even takes a moment where he becomes uh, even more fruitful by adopting Manasseh and Ephraim, uh, counting them as his primary heirs, which this was really interesting, too, I forgot about. Um, but Ephraim and Manasseh uh, were the sons of Joseph, the first two born of Joseph. And Jacob says, hey, your first two sons are going to be now my sons. I'm adopting them as my children. Mm-hmm. Um, and he then gives them blessing. And the blessing he gives them is the firstborn and the secondborn, uh, which was really interesting because the two that were entitled to that were Reuben and Simeon. Uh, but they had previously dishonored Abr- or Jacob. And so because of that, they were on the outs.
0: And that's to be clear, when they dishonored him, it's when they went and got revenge for yeah, Dinah's uh, rape. Yeah. And then yep. they killed the... The guy, his father, and like the whole, they plundered the whole village. Yep. What, what's interesting, it, Ephraim is the second born, right, too? Yes. If I remember. Okay, yeah, because I, I remember their flip there. Yeah. So it is kind of interesting how the whole thing kind of goes yeah, on its head.
1: because Jacob's standing, or it, uh, Joseph is standing there, brings his sons, in, and then Jacob's like, who who are these guys? Oh, these are my, these are the first two sons that God gave me. And he goes to pray a blessing over them. And then he switches his hands. He crosses his hands over. Yep. And Jacob or Joseph, is praying. brain's like, no, 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 dad, dad, wrong. He's like, no, I know what I'm doing. Uh, and so it is a significant moment of not just adopting two children to replace two of his own sons, mm-hmm. but then also to re, to reversing their birth order for blessing.
0: Well, it's interesting because remember Manasseh. I should say, remember, if you listened last year, uh, Manasseh is one of the apostate tribes. So Manasseh and Dan are the two tribes that aren't mentioned in Revelation as kind of the inheritance of the Israelites. Um, But this also begins, it's the super confusing, but this is good to know, I guess, because as we read, it's going to be really confusing. There are 13 tribes of Israel. Yes, There are 12 tribes in the sense of land. So when we talk about the 12 tribes of Israel, we're talking specifically about the land inheritance, you could almost call them the 12 provinces or the 12 states of Israel, yes. the nation of Israel when that happens. However, when you're talking about the people groups that people can belong to, there are 13 because Joseph's tribe gets split into two. So there's Ephraim and Manasseh. And it yes. gets even more confusing because there's East Manasseh and West Manasseh eventually as well. It's but. true.
1: Well, then it gets even more confusing on top of that because it even says this reality of any other sons born to Joseph are also under the record of their brother's names.
0: Oh, because right. then
1: they share in the inheritance that they're getting from being Jacob's sons and it's being split among them, which is, it's, it's just this crazy, like, <laughs> I, I don't, I don't know if I had the time to even consider the implications or how like, not messed up that family tree is, but how like intertwined the roots are. I'll just make that a simple imagery there. Right. Um, but it is, it's, it's pretty like, it gets really messy and kind of dysfunctional to a degree. Um, but you see this uh, coming towards the end of Jacob's life. Uh, that's the, he kind of takes a moment where he adopts Joseph's two oldest sons. He in, in, invites them into the inheritance. So Joseph's spot is now split into two. Uh, and he he blesses the second born to give him the rights of the firstborn and, and vice versa. Um, you see then in chapter 49, which I actually wanted to read this chapter, but I was like, no, I'll let you guys read it. Because uh, he gives the last word to each of his sons. Uh, and then he gives direction for his burial. But the way he comes out, like he he lights up <laughs> Reuben. He doesn't hold back. He he. There's like a curse. Uh, it's it's pretty interesting because see intense. his last words and and it's again in that culture and day and age, it wasn't to be offensive. It was just to be forthright and clear. This is me being honest. Um, so you see his last words to each of his sons. He asks. He gives directions for his burial. Uh, and then chapter fifty is where we see the document uh, documentation of Jacob's burial. You see Joseph's mourning. Uh, And I thought this was a really powerfully redemptive moment um, in chapter 50, towards the end of the book of Genesis, uh, verses 15 to 21. It says, when Joseph saw that their father was dead, when Joseph's brother, sorry, saw that their father was dead, they said to one another, if Joseph is holding a grudge against us, he will certainly repay us for all the suffering we caused him. So they sent this message to Joseph. Before he died, your father gave a command. Now, whether this is a true command or not, I don't know. Uh, but this is what they told Joseph, Jacob said to them. Say this to Joseph, please forgive your brother's transgression and their sin, the suffering they caused you. Therefore, please forgive the transgression of your servants, of the God of, of your father. Joseph wept when their message came to him. Now this is this is showing Joseph was still ruling in Egypt. He's a very powerful man. Very, yes. And the, his brothers were still living in the land of Goshen. This is not, they weren't like, In the same neighborhood. They weren't in the same really even region. They were in Egypt and they had their own region that they were sent to. Um, And so there was not close proximity for Joseph's brothers to be interacting with Joseph. Uh, And I'm sure that there was some grief and tension there, but the fact that they were closer, the fact that they all knew they were alive, that was a big deal. Uh, So then when Joseph received this message from his brothers, it says he wept. Uh, Verse 18 says, his brothers also came to him, bowed down before him and said, we are your slaves. And this is the redemptive moment I think is so powerful. But Joseph said to them, "Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You planned evil against me, God planned it for good to bring out the this or bring out the present result, the survival of many people. Therefore, don't be afraid. I will take care of you and your children." And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. The one guy who had all of the opportunity to and all the authority to punish now that his dad was his was dead. He didn't do it because he understood the higher picture so i thought that was really powerful uh and then we get this picture of joseph his death the last four or five verses of genesis chapter 50 uh says this joseph and his father's family remained in egypt joseph lived 110 years he saw Ephraim's sons to the third generation the sons of Manasseh's son mikhir were recognized by joseph joseph said to his brothers so he died before his brothers I'm about to die, but God will certainly come to you or come to your aid and bring you up from this land to the land he swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So Joseph made the sons of Israel take an oath. When God comes to your aid, you are to carry my bones up from here. Joseph died at age 110. They embalmed him and placed him in a coffin in Egypt. Um, And that's the end of Genesis. That's what we see. But I thought it was such a a significant moment uh, as the chapter ends of God's faithfulness and provision. And you see that, but also for Joseph to be able to see the third generation, uh, his sons of the third generation, and to be able to, he, he didn't outlive his brothers, but he was able to provide and provide
0: clarity and direction to his brothers as well. Well, I think it's interesting here the dual tension of he makes them swear that when they return to their land, that they will bring Joseph with them and bury him there. Um, but he's also buried in the manner of the Egyptians, because yep. he's embalmed, yep. which is like that. Which not, so was Jacob. Really? Oh, I didn't catch
1: that. Yep, yeah, because it was forty days. They they did the embalming oh. like normal, um, and part of it is they had a lot of a lot of favor. Joseph had so much favor with Pharaoh, um, and the way that they were treating embalming, embalming someone was a sign of deep respect, right, um, in Egyptian culture.
0: And so yeah, so he was buried just like the Egyptians. It's yeah, it's crazy to think about. Um, it reminds me of. Uh, St. Patrick where like in a, I've been on a St. Patrick kick for a while, but Long time. you know, he goes to, he goes to Ireland and he's become so a part of that culture that people forget that he's British. They think of him as being Irish. And it kind of reminds me here of Joseph. He's become so a part, and not in a bad way necessarily, like he's served the Egyptians well, yeah, um, but he's become so much of it that the Egyptians seem to not even think of him as being like separate. He's like, oh yeah, he's one, he's one of us. He's one of our guys.
1: Yeah. Yeah, so you see at the end of it, he he's treated like an Egyptian uh, and and he dies. And as we get it further in the Old Testament, the narrative uh, unfolding of God's people, uh, we'll jump into Exodus in a little bit, but we're going to jump into Job as well because about, again, chronologically, Job was... Uh, uh, What's the word? A companion uh, to this part of Genesis. Right and this part of story. But Aaron, before we jump into Job, we have
0: some exciting news for our listeners <laughs> on both Spotify and Apple Podcasts. We are now above one hundred reviews. Go so rad! Uh, does it mean anything? No. But no, hey, thank
1: you. <laughs> but it strokes our ego. No, I'm just kidding. It just uh, again for me, I had a goal. Like I'd love to see us get to 100 by the end of the year, and we were so close. I think uh, on the 31st we were 99. I think we, got, we got real close. Either way, uh, we are now sitting at 102 on Apple Podcasts, and I think 117 last I saw. That'll probably be the last that I really push for a number right now, but uh, it is fun because we got a couple written reviews. I want to read one of them today, um, and this one is from Daddy Xavier. He says, I'm a new I'm new as a Christian. Both of you guys make it easy to learn and understand. I'm so happy for your work. It's so easy to listen to you guys. Keep up the good work. Thank you so much. Uh, and I would just simply say, Daddy Xavier, man. Keep, keep digging in. Keep staying with us. I, I love that you're brand new to following faith uh, and anything we can do along the way to help encourage you, answer questions, and partner with you in your journey. We would love to do that. So thanks for leaving that review. Uh, and thanks
0: for our listenership to continuing
1: to engage with us as we are in season five, three weeks in now. Oh,
0: yeah. Yep. Leaving those five-star reviews, it helps the podcast get out there to more people. We can continue to grow the community, uh, which is always fun. And yeah, our, our me and Aaron's deepest desire is honestly to... Uh, help the Bible come alive for you and to help us all kind of read the Bible together. And so, I, yeah, leaving the reviews helps that come true, but also it just means the world to us to get your feedback and yeah. to let us know, A, places you think we can do, do be doing better, but also let us know that, you know, sometimes it can feel like you're just, we're just talking to each other. So it's nice to know It's true. It's very it's true. It's nice to know that you're listening and that's it's a It's a good thing we like each other. It's true. All right, well, let's talk about Job. Uh, so Job is, I, I love Job. It's a great book. Um, so it's an interesting- Really? Inter- yeah. Sure? It's, it's a good time. Uh, Job is a really interesting book to date because we basically have no idea. Uh, so as far as when it was written, it could have been written pre-Pentateuch, theoretically. Uh, I doubt it, but it, it could have been. Um, And then it can also have been written all the way up to like the post-exilic period. And so I I tend to think of it and this is, you know, take it for what it's worth. Um, When you say post-exilic, what do you mean? Oh, so after Jerusalem falls at the, so at the end of... uh, After the exile. Yeah, at the end of Kings is when that would, they go to the exile, yeah, and they come back. That's a very wide range. That's of dating. True. Oh yeah. Job is insane <laughs> as for when it comes to that. Well, it's nice because oh, I'll get to this later, but the, the the dating of it doesn't matter. Like the message of the book is what matters. It really, yeah. I could not care less when it was written or when it's set. Um, if, you, if you really want to know, I would think it was written um, sometime in the early monarchy of Israel because Ezekiel mention, mentions Job. Um, now he could have known of Job by oral tradition, which is uh, almost certainly how he knows about Daniel because he mentions Daniel in that same passage as well. Um, but Daniel, the book of Daniel was not written (laughs) at that point because Ezekiel and Daniel, Daniel are temporaries. Um, so he could just be talking that way. I would tend to think though that if he's mentioning Job, that means the book was probably there and was probably well enough known by that point. And so I would date it to like, you know, maybe, um, when Solomon's collecting his wisdom and stuff like that, this is one of the things that gets written down. But again, who knows? And it's not like a, it doesn't make a huge difference one way or the other. Um, as far as the setting of the book, I would say it's most likely set before the law of Moses. And this is specifically because Job ask, acts as the priest for his family, and this is not condemned. And so you would think that once you get to the law of Moses, it's required that you have a Levite priest who is doing sacrifices and things yep. like that. So that tends, to, that tends to date it before then. Um, other than that, it ranges super widely. It can, it can be all the way pre-Abraham, like way before, and it can be up to the, during the exile in Egypt. So like after Joseph dies, the stuff with Job is all happening. Um, I tend to view Job as a contemporary of Joseph. And the reason for this is that uh, one of his friends is Eliphaz, the Temanite and uh, Tem- Teman being a city in Edom. Uh, and so, and Esau has a son of the same name. And so, I, Ooh. and this is what, again, super open handed, who the heck knows? Uh, but I tend to think of that Eliphaz as being the actual Esau's son Eliphaz because he seems to be the most familiar with Yahweh of the friends and he's the least jerky of the three friends. And so, I kind of think of if he's, um, He's maybe a little hot-headed like his father but he at least knows who God is and so that's kind of my thought there but again it's who knows it could be later than that it could be way earlier than that it's it's all up in the air um Like I said, the timeline is probably the least important thing about Job. What's most important is the questions that it answers, that it wrestles through. Um, Job is the first book in what we call the wisdom literature. And so that's Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Solomon. Uh, They're called the wisdom literature for good reason, because they they wrestle with essentially what is the place of wisdom uh, in the world, particularly the first four. Song of Solomon is a little bit interesting because it's like, what is the wisdom in romantic love? And we'll talk about that when we get there. Um, But Job, Psalms, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes, all romantic. Wrestle through what is what is the nature of God and what is the nature of wisdom in many different points. Uh, some of the questions that Job specifically wrestles through would be why does God allow the righteous to go through pain? Um, I specifically phrased it that way because one of the, one of my I, I shouldn't say pet peeves because like obviously people oh but it's a pet peeve yeah Evan has a lot of them a lot it's, of trigger points it's true well because I, I I, yeah, I don't want to say pet peeve because I think it belittles it I think this is a question that people wrestle through but I, I hate phrasing it why do bad things happen to good people um because they don't <laughs> and so this is, and this is my thing. Uh, none of us are good, right? Like the Bible is very clear that we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of God. Uh, why? Like, I forgot what passages, but why do you call me good? No one is good except for God. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, a, I think the some, rich,
1: it's the rich ruler. Yeah. The uh, rich, r-
0: Jesus. the rich yeah. young ruler. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so there's the whole idea of a, I, I think sometimes we have an inflated sense of who we are and what, oh, we, and what we deserve. Uh, no, we deserve death and hell. That is what we deserve. And, and the fact that we don't get that is, grace. Um, I also don't like saying the word... I don't like describing painful things as bad things, because I don't think that's always the case. And we'll talk about that as we get through Job. But I think really often um, when we walk through pain, it's not necessarily a bad thing. God Mm -hmm. uses pain all the time, Joseph's life. Yeah, to, yeah, yeah. The life of Joseph, right? What what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Um, there's painful things that we as Christians walk through, but they're not necessarily bad or yeah. evil. They are, they're part of the plan. Yeah. Uh, a couple other questions that the book talks through is well, before you. Oh, I, yeah. I think it's really important to, and I know some.
1: It, it feels a little bit like a side note, like preaching platform, if you will. But there's there's a whole lot of truth to it. Like we have to understand, and and wrestle through the concept of it's what we deserve, what we really are, because that's, that's the gospel. Like that's what makes the gospel so profound. And when we try to minimize it, we try and draw the, the, the beauty of eternity, the beauty of salvation down to a human level. So we feel better about ourselves. No, at the end of the day, man, I, I, I'm, I'm a, I'm a wretched mess. Right. And, and except for the grace of God, this is what made Paul's point so powerful. Like except by the grace of God, there go I. And the whole idea of pain and suffering, as, as Christians, as followers of Christ, we're called to a higher view of things, a a, a godly view of things, where we understand the depths, of, and we get to understand the depths of His riches, the depths of His mercy, the depths of his, his love in the midst of pain, in the midst of suffering. And that, I mean, yeah. In in short, Joseph's life, uh, and so many different individuals throughout Scripture that we're going to dive into this year. It is that tension. So I know it kind of feels like a sidebar, and, and and I, I don't, we're not, we're not intending to be insensitive to maybe a situation you're walking through right now, if you're listening to this. Um, but it's just, it is, it's making sure we're framing questions properly where it's not egocentric, but it's God centric. And that, that's a big thing as well, because why, what is, why does God allow righteous to go through pain as a much better way to answer a question and wrestle through a question than why do good things happen to bad people? Or why do bad things happen to good people? Right. And why do good things happen to bad people? Like it. it it, it, we got to make sure we're not watering down terms and being truthful.
0: With what it is so anyways, I remember there's an old message I was listening to from Timothy Keller. And one of the things, one of the things he remarked on is one of, one of the ways that you can tell the maturity of a Christian is how much they believe the opening lines of amazing grace, where it's amazing mm-hmm. grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. He said, the longer you're a Christian and the more that you, uh, truly dive in to who you are and what God has done, the more you truly believe, like, how amazing is that grace that it yeah. saved a wretch like me. So, yeah. and I think that's one of the things that we, it's a, it's an uncomfortable thought and we tend to skip yeah. past it. Yeah. And it's, it's a journey, right? So yeah. I
1: think of even daddy Xavier, he left a review that we just shouted out. You say you're a new Christian. It's a journey. You may not be so profoundly moved by amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, Uh, it's the same thing as Micah Kruger, our friend, uh, who spoke at camp in one of our winter camps years ago when I was a youth pastor. Uh, but he just said like the phrase, Jesus loves me this, I know for the Bible tells me so if we have, if we've lost the profundity of that statement, um, then there's the, when we need to revisit it. And so I think it is, Mm -hmm. it's this journey of maturity that am I moved by the gospel more and more as the longer I follow Jesus, because that's the trajectory we should be on, not deep understanding. So anyways, total side note. You're welcome for the bonus podcast episode.
0: All right. Well, other questions that the book of Job wrestles through is if God is all powerful and desires justice, why is justice not perfect here on Earth? Uh, why is God seemingly so silent so often? Uh, and then perhaps most importantly, what is the nature and character of God? So these are all questions that are going to be wrestled through. Um, they're all going to be answered, kind of. But we'll get to that at the end. And it's uh, it's one of the it's one of my favorite. Uh, climactic moments of, of any book of the Bible is when, uh, well, spoilers alert, when God answers some of those questions. So uh, the book is also entirely poetry mixed with some, with with some prose mixed in there, but not very much. Um, here's what I encourage you. I think some of the hardest sections, probably the hardest sections of the Bible to read, I would say is when you get into the law and it's like describing the cubic feet of the temple and like how to bathe after you touch a certain thing. Um, the second hardest part portions to read the Bible are probably the poetry. But I would really encourage you to allow yourself to get lost in the poetry as much as possible. Um, And this is all of the poetry in the Old Testament as we read it. Try to take off your modern Western glasses and put on your ancient Near East glasses um, because it's going to help you understand what the people are going through. Think about the metaphors that they use and why do they use these metaphors. Think about why um, people living in certain societies do that. And we'll try and talk a little bit about that as well as as we read, Um, but... Yeah. I think, I think it's just one of those important things that we don't allow ourselves just to kind of skim through it because there's there's, the reason I kind of got obsessed with Job is I had it explained to me a little bit and then it clicked and then I read it again. And then I was like, oh, this is so powerful. Like, I can't believe we're not talking about this more often. Um, And so that's hopefully what we can do for you a little bit here. Uh, So chapter one begins with, by introducing us to Job, he is a man from us, and we are told that he fears God and turns away from evil. Um, This is important. We're also told that God, God specifically says that there is no one like him on the earth, or in other words, that he is the greatest of all the people of the East. And so Job is a good man. He's not just a good man, I guess. He's a great man. Um, He loves the Lord and he loves his family we're told that he offers sacrifices for them all the time that he kind of has this almost perfect idyllic life that he's uh living and then ed- a few sentences later we get in, we get kind of a peek behind the curtain of a meeting in heaven and this is a uh an interaction between god and and satan and this is in job chapter 1 starting verse 6 It says, now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came along with them. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on on the earth and from walking up and down on it. Which you know, okay, sounds a little. You can just answer the question, Satan. Seriously, <laughs> he's got to be a little uh, poetic about it. And he's drama, bro. That's so. true. Uh, and then the Lord said to Satan, "Have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil." Then Satan answered the Lord and said, "Does God? Does Job fear God for no reason?" Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the works of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land, but stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord. Uh, Okay. So what happens there is to kind of summarize for a little bit. Uh, Satan comes and and god says yahweh says have you considered my servant Job? Isn't he just amazing? And, and Satan says, well, yeah, of course he's amazing because you give him everything. Like the guy has the perfect wife and the perfect kids and he has all of this land and all of this livestock. Like, yeah, I would serve you too. If everything you... about him is perfect. Yeah, pretty much, right? And, and so what Satan is getting at is the only reason that Job has any affinity towards the Lord is because of the material circumstances that he's in. Or in other words, because of the blessings that Job has, that's the reason that Job has affection for it. Um, and this can't Right. Like the, like God straight up says, okay, we'll prove it. And because it's not just an, and the, and, this is, and this is, yeah, bad. <laughs> um, but the important thing here is it's not just an attack on Job, what Satan just did. This is also attack on an attack on the nature and character of God, because the idea here is that God is not worth worshiping outside of the blessings that he gives us. Um, And some people live like that's true. And I shouldn't say some people, we all have a tendency to live like that's true. And it's a very convicting thought that is, would we be, yeah, would we hold fast? Would we worship the Lord um, if all of the blessings in our lives were revoked? I want to say yes. So don't we all? (laughs) I'm going to leave it there. Um, So following this, Job loses everything. Um, And I I really don't want to skip past this because I think sometimes we know what's going to happen, but... Imagine for a moment being in Job's posi- position and in, in a matter of what seems like minutes, it does not seem like it's a very long time. Uh, Job finds out that all of his livestock is gone and that all of his children have died. And then eventually um, Satan even comes after his own health after God allows it to happen. And so he is uh, covered in painful sores that he literally is scraping pottery against his body in order to in order to relieve the pain. And so imagine for a moment that you wake up and I, I would, I would compare it to going to your job, finding out that you're fired and then getting a call from the bank that something happened, something you had your life savings invested to completely went under and you've lost everything. And then getting a call that your house burned down and all of your family was all, of, all of your kids were inside and then none of them made it out. That is essentially what happened to Job. And on top of that, getting a, a painful skin disease that has no relief that could basically getting like intense shingles. Um, that's, what's going on with Job right now. It's insane. Yes. Um, and he, he's in a place that is darker than most of us can imagine. And we get this really telling interaction between Job and his wife. And so in, in verse nine, in chapter two, we see, uh, then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, "You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? In all of this, Job did not sin with his lips." So incredible! Oh, I mean, it's nuts. And, it, and here's the thing: I think sometimes Job's wife gets a bad rap um, because we think was of was this our... after the boil? Sorry. Yes. Yeah. This them. is after everything. Crazy. Um, I think sometimes we think of ourselves like, "Oh man, Job's wife is just the worst. She just wants him to curse God and guy die." that's very understandable. And basically what she's getting... And here's the thing, um, and, and it's really uncomfortable to read, Job wants to die. When you read through the book of Job, he he is straight up asking God, why aren't you just letting me die right now?
1: Yeah, that's part of one of the issues. That's so, one of the things he complains about.
0: Yeah. So he he is not willing to curse God and die. What seems like what is probably happening here um, is that he he is longing for death because of the pain he's going through. And, but he refuses to curse God. He refuses to le- to let go of his integrity. Um, and his wife is telling him just let go and die. Like and it's, it's, and it's not like she's tired of him. It's, it's mercy. Uh, she's saying like, I seeing everything that's happened right now. Um, I also love, and this is really subtle. I love that Job says you speak as one of the foolish women would speak, not you are yes. a foolish woman. Yes. And so what he's getting at there is not that my wife is a fool. He's getting at, this isn't who you are. Yep. You're acting like something that you're not. So yep. it's a very loving, it, it looks really harsh on the page, but it's actually a very loving way to rebuke his wife in that moment. Uh, so, you know, Job, Job's just a good guy. Uh, after this, Job has three friends come to visit, and this is Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Uh, this is going to be the meat of the book. Most of the book is going to be these four men talking, and it's uh, it kind of drags a little bit, but we'll talk about it. But it's it's also very worth it for the end. The ending of Job is uh, when we get to Elihu, and then finally we get to Yahweh's answers. It's going to be that's some of my favorite pastors of all the Bible. Um, speaking of people who get a bad rap, the friends. Uh, <laughs> and so here's the thing, right? The, and the, They're just the worst, okay? They they are without a doubt the villains of the book and they do some wicked things. And so I don't want to, when I say they get a bad rap, I don't want to say like they did nothing wrong, but here here's what happens. And this is where we'll talk about this more when we get to the application portion as well. Um, they go, they find Job and what the, what's the first thing they do? They just go and they sit with him for a week. Um, again, easy to skip past. They sat in silence with their friend. As he weeps and scrapes his body with poverty up uh, with pottery, um, weeping over all that he has lost. And they don't say a word. They just sit with him and they're present with him and they let him know they're there. Um, these are not fake friends. They, they truly care about Job, um, but they're... A, that's going to be hard to remember. The more that we read, and then B, they're they're so mistaken in their theology that they let themselves go from being good friends to being Job's worst oppressors. Because um, that's also important is Satan does not come back. So the the last time Satan is mentioned in the book is the end of chapter two, and then the whole rest of the book is is conversations between Job and but between Job and his friends, and then Job and God at the end. And so the, uh, Satan does not play a central role once you get past the beginning, um, circumstance that leads to all of the dialogues. So it kind of an important thing there. Um, in chapter three, Job finally speaks. So this is after a week of sitting in silence. And these are some of, some of the most depressing passages in scripture. Let me tell you, um, in chapter three, he laments the day of his birth. And so yeah. he talks about how like, oh, that day should be cursed. And he talks about how his father um, shouted for joy at, his, at the day of his birth. And he's like, why did you do that? And it's, you know, he's obviously talking about it poetically, but it's like, there's no reason to shout for joy. My life isn't worth um, being happy about. He then moves on to lament the fact that he lived past his birth. And so he literally talks about how he wishes he was stillborn. He wishes that he would have just... Um, passed away as he lived instead of having to grow up. And then he laments finally the fact that he is alive right now. And again, he, he's clearly longing um, for the relief of death in this moment. And he, and he wants God to give that to him. And and yet that's, that's not happening. Um, after this in chapter four, the first of the friends speak. And so there's going to be, there's, this is called the cycles of Job, the way that it works and is one of the friends will speak. Job will apply. The second, so it'll be Eliphaz will speak, Job will reply, Bildad will speak, Job will reply, Zophar will speak, Job will reply, Job will say something else, and then it starts all over again. And Eliphaz speaks, Bildad speaks, Zophar speaks. Um, that's the way it goes. The last cycle, Zophar doesn't speak, and we'll get to a little bit about why that may be. Um, but that's going to be next week. So, this week, we're just going to talk about the beginning of the the cycles. Uh, Eliphaz is the first one to speak. I like to call him the good man who is wrong um, <laughs> of. Of the friends of Job, he is the one where we can most clearly see how he is a good, he is a good guy. Um, but he's he's so mistaken that it leads him to say some wicked things, especially later on in his last speech. um he he really crosses the line. Um, but he l- listen to how he begins his speech. So this is in Job chapter four. He says, "If one ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? Yet who can keep from speaking? Behold, you have instructed many and you have strengthened the weak hands. Your words have upheld him who was stumbling and you have made him, made firm the feeble knees. But now it has come to you and you are impatient. It touches you and you are dismayed. Is not your fear of God your confidence and the integrity of your ways your hope? So what's happening there? Eliphaz is, he's kind of saying like, Job, you're a great guy. Like you have gone through your life and you have helped people and you have stood them up and you have given them advice but now it's time for us to do the same to you. And so you see that that's the way that Eliphaz is coming at this. He is coming at Mm -hmm. this as Job is mistaken. And just like Job has been wise and he's given wisdom to so many other people, now it's time for him to do the same for his friend. Um, And so, and I love the line in verse six, is not your fear of God, your confidence, and the integrity of your ways, your hope. Because that is kind of the crux of the argument is (laughs) that the friends believe that Job's suffering is a byproduct of something that he has done. And so if Job's, if the integrity of Job's ways is his hope, that means that he would hope in for better circumstances because of the way he has acted. And that is what the friends say. Um, They, all three of them believe that the evidence of, of Job's suffering is all the evidence that they need to know that Job has a secret sin of some sort that he is not confessing to them. Um, in the beginning, it's very vague, and they just talk about how you need to turn and repent to God of whatever you, it is you did. Later on, as the speeches go, they're actually going to straight up say what they think it is, but we'll you know we'll save that for later. I don't want to spoil everything. Um, and here's the scary part about Eliphaz: um, his advice to repent and seek God would be correct if his opinion of Job was correct. Um, and there's a few sections like this where some of the friends, like some of the stuff, and this is what makes the friends hard to interpret, right? Some of the stuff they say, you can throw out and you can say, okay, they're clearly wrong theologically with the way, the way they're thinking here. Some of the stuff they say is actually correct. And if if Job is who they said he was, um, if Job actually had sinned and fallen away, they're doing the right thing. And so I, I, and again, we'll talk about this a little bit during the application, but this, it's the scary part of the book for me is that they have good intentions. Um, they even have some of the right advice, but they're so wrong and they refuse to have their minds changed. They refuse to believe their friend and they, belie- they refuse to change their worldview based off an overwhelming evidence um, that it leads them to do incredible evil. Um, as we, we're going to have to kind of power through some of this here, but uh, Job's reply to Eliphaz in chapter 6 focuses on the pain that he feels from seem, from the seeming betrayal of God. Um, he compares his suffering to being shot with many arrows. And so kind of the word picture that he paints is it's like he's been in a battle and he still has all these arrows in him, and he's just wandering around, around waiting to die in shock from what happened. Um, Job also begins to come after his friends for not bringing him comfort in the midst of his pain. Um, this is going to get explored a lot <laughs> later on. Uh, right, right now, it's not... All of the tensions of the conversations are a lot lower than they eventually will be. Um, even the first interaction of Eliphaz and Job is pretty civil. Um, it gets a little bit worse, as we'll see later on uh, or in, in a couple seconds. Um, but as the cycles keep going, eventually by the time you get to the third, you can imagine that they're screaming at each other. Like it, it goes really downhill. <laughs> yeah, and, it's, and it's really sad, too, because yeah. you see the the devolution of these close friendships. Uh, and then f- he also focuses Job on his reply it it kind of harkens back to chapter three when he's lamenting everything. He's talking about the hopelessness that he feels. That he's like again. It's like he's been shot with a bunch of arrows and he's just lying waiting to die, and he has no hope of being revived. Uh, the second friend is Bildad. And I call him the smart man who lacked wisdom. Um, and what you'll see with Eliphaz is Eliphaz is again. We his intentions seem to be mostly good. He also has this kind of uh, mystic air about him. During the his first uh, during his first speech, he'll mention a dream that he had and how like God has kind of given him some revelation inside of this dream. Uh, Bildad, his main thing that he that he uh, References. I can't think of the word I was trying to go for there, but the main thing he appeals to, there we go, um, is the wisdom of the ancients. Mm -hmm. And so he talks about how we know all of these things. And so um, in chapter eight, the decorum of Eliphaz gives way to the much harsher tone of Bildad. um, And he pretty much calls Job a windbag straight up. And he's like to paraphrase in modern English, hey, windbag, shut up and listen to me is kind of what Bildad says here. Um, His argument is that Job knows all of the ancient wisdom and that that wisdom says that Job must have done something to deserve this suffering. And so his whole point is just like, listen, Job, you and I both know what this is, right? Stop trying to pretend you've read the same things I've read. You have the same traditions I have. We both know that you sinned. Just come out and say it, repent, and then this can all be over. Um, also, just as a fun side note, Bildad is a bit of a botany enthusiast. So you'll see that he uses a lot of plants in his metaphors. So, you know, like it gives him a little character, a little nerdy gardening bildad. Uh in chapter nine, Joe, I, I shouldn't say that gardening's nerdy because I know a lot of gardeners and it's a great, it's a great <laughs> hobby to be in. So
1: you just offended half our.
0: I know, I was about to say, like, I was like, ah, I, I personally don't garden, but I also really love fresh fruits and vegetables, so I shouldn't get on gardeners. Uh, in chapter nine, Job replies with saying that he couldn't hope to stand up and tell God that he is in the wrong. Um, although I, I put in the notes, Job's definitely going to give it a go later on. So not right now, but he will. Uh, chapter 10 is a prayer once again, lamenting that God is keeping him alive if he has to go through all this pain. This is a theme that, like again, it's it's really uncomfortable, but um, the book wrestles through this, the book wrestles through the fact that Job, um, wants to die. And I think sometimes we skip over that, but it's in wrestling through the, in presenting Job, Job's reality of grief as real as possible. I think it gives the story more power because this, it becomes clear. This isn't just someone who is, you know, he's not a character. Like this is a man who is going through this incredibly painful time. And we're getting a picture into what's going through his mind, uh, and then finally, the, the last chapter that we'll read this week is chapter 11. And this is Zophar. Uh, Zophar is, uh, you know, just the worst. Uh, he's the youngest of it's the three. Fr- the worst. Oh, man. He's the youngest of the three. Um, and he just goes full bore. And he says, yeah, you know, Job, you probably deserve even worse than what's been happening to you. And that's kind of his point is like, yeah, I mean, you know, you probably sinned even worse than all of this. So God's giving you mercy in this moment. Um, yeah, Zophar is kind of a hothead. He only has two speeches because I think he, you know, he burns bright and, and, and uh, diminishes quickly, but we'll, we'll talk more about that in the, in the coming weeks. Uh, but yeah, that does it for our first, our first read through of Job, Job. but yeah. we, before we, uh, before we wrap up today, we do want to get to our points of application. Yeah. And so as we, uh, jump
1: in, I'll jump in first and just kind of recap the end of Genesis, I think it's, uh, you know, it kind of, I think I said to Evan earlier today that it kind of follows up last week's statement, um, just as far as trusting in God's provision over the course of uh, things that we can't explain or understand, whether it's hardship or trial or stuff. But I also think one of the most important things is Joseph's response to his brothers after Jacob died, Um, that his brothers were anxious and worried that they, that Joseph was holding a grudge um, they were worried about punishment. They were worried because again, Joseph had the authority to and not even be questioned, to to kill his brothers or to punish his brothers, and no one would question him. But um I, I really deep and deeply appreciate the um, eternal perspective that Joseph operates with, where he even said it's like what you intended for evil, God intended for good. Like that's one of the phrases that we use often in modern, uh, modern biblical t- conversations, so to speak about hardship. Uh, but it comes from Joseph's life. And so I think uh, the, the willingness to release a grudge into God's sovereignty, I think is really important as followers of Christ. I think there is a, um, there is a power that exists, you know, and I'm not talking like spooky, supernatural, ghost, whatever type mystical power, but there is uh, an empowerment of that happens when we're able to release grudges, when we're able to release someone and holding someone hostage, really more so ourselves because of a wrong or offense. Joseph's life didn't play out the way he thought it would, but his dreams were still fulfilled. His brother still came in and bowed down to him, um, and and at the end of it, he he still maintained a very high picture and understanding of God's provision, which allowed him to forgive, which allowed him to release. Uh, his brothers from being held liable for uh, a difficult life. He didn't enjoy prison. He didn't enjoy being sold into slavery, but um, in all of it, he saw God's provision and God's favor. Uh, and so I think for as Christians, like it's important or, as we reflect on Joseph's life is to understand um, the need to quickly forgive, the need to quickly reconcile and release uh, what we feel entitled to because at the end of the day, it's God's will that prevails. It's he who is sovereign uh, and is in control. And we even see that a little bit in Job with God's sovereignty in allowing Satan to uh, to test Job. In the first round, Job didn't curse. Job didn't waver. And so Satan came back and had a second go at it. So um, I just think that there's a, a real high power in reconciliation and releasing grudges and forgiveness and um, still genuinely loving and believing the best.
0: Well, I think especially if with us as Christians, we have the added context of um, God forgives us, and he, like again, like do we truly believe, "Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound, that yeah. saved a wretch like me"? If we do believe that, um, how wicked is it for us to accept that grace from God and then not offer it to yeah. others? <clears throat> it's a it's kind of a scary thought. It's very true. Uh, my my thought today is it's uh, I just wrote down the road to hell is paved with good intentions that old that old saying, but. Um, I truly do think as, as I was studying through Job and, and writing and things like that, one of the things that just struck me was how um, the friends get it so right in some places in in certain ways, but they get it so, so wrong in, in many other, in most other ways yeah. uh, and how it, it's incredible how just, yeah, their unwillingness to listen to their friend, their unwillingness to let their worldview be challenged by new evidence Um leads them to just be an incredibly wicked and incredibly poor friends to Job. Um, but again, I think the scariest part about it is at no point do they think to themselves, well, I could be wrong. Like they are, they're doing this, uh, fully with the expectation that they're in the right and they're gonna give the tough love that Job needs, um, and yet they're they're not willing to be challenged on that at all. And I, I wonder in our lives, how many times do we think that we're right and we don't realize that we're actually doing a wrong thing? So how how often do we uh base what we do in scripture and not just like loosely, how often do we think yep. to ourselves, okay, well this is what God would have me do. How often when we have to do hard things, do we consult with other people? Do we think to our hey, just like help me make sure um do I have my head on straight with this? Um This isn't, you know, conflict, but I was, I remember I was, um, I did a message on, um, the book of Luke for, for Christmas. And I was talking about kind of, I had this idea of. Um, the glory of God that had left in Ezekiel and it appears back in Matthew. But before I spoke it, I, I went to a couple people and I was like, okay, Hey, real quick heresy check here. Like, am I, am I thinking straight? Um, and in that moment, you know, it's just wanting to make sure that I'm not going to get up on stage and say something that is completely anti-biblical because I'm not thinking straight or I'm not thinking of the, the right way. Uh, but in the same ways when we have to go through and we have to bring correction, we have to do those things. How often do we consult with other people? How often do we, do we get advice? How often do we pray? And, and really seek the Holy spirit's guidance and all those things. Because um, I think sometimes we know when we sin and we know that, Hey, I need to go apologize because I acted sinfully with that person. Uh, The even scarier times is when you don't even think of it because you haven't done the do littles beforehand and you think you did the right thing. And all of a sudden later on, it's going to be revealed that you didn't. So there you go. Uh, Our last segment today is going to be our question and answer section. Ah, uh, this week we had this question come in, and one of my—I will say—one of my favorite things about the podcast is getting questions that look at things in a way that I never would have thought of. And so, I never would have thought of this before in my life. Oh, really? I, I really—it Is it not? Uh, I, I've thought. Like, oh, really? I,
1: I asked the same question uh, years and I mean years and years ago. Like, oh, okay. So.
0: Well, here we go. So why does Abraham find it so wild that he's going to have a child at 99 when his entire family line up to Noah was having kids at like 500 years old? Uh, (laughs) I love the way
1: you phrase it. Well, it's
0: a great, it's a great question. Uh, And so here's a, here's a couple of things I'll say, a couple of possibilities. I think it can, they can kind of both be true in in certain aspects. Um, A, there's just the simple biological differences between men and women. Uh, With, with women, you have a, you reach a point in age where you can no longer have kids Men, theoretically, you don't reach that point. Like you can have kids as a very old man. Um, you cannot have kids as a very old woman. And so you could say uh, one of the possibilities is that a lot of these things that are happening, it's it's men marrying younger wives. And so they're able to have kids in their old age, whereas um, uh, the the women aren't. I don't think that's what's happening, but that is a possibility I wanted yeah. to bring up. Uh, what I think is actually happening here is we see a really steep decline in life expect- expectancy uh, at, on in the beginning of Genesis. So, And it's, it starts basically right after Noah. So we know that Noah lived... Um, I think it was almost 900 years again, right? Like the people before him. I I need to look. I should have had that number in my head. Um, But let's read this genealogy in chapter 11 while Aaron looks up how old Noah was when he dies. Uh, But this is one of Noah's sons. So this is Shem. It says, when Shem was 100 years old, he fathered, Ah, I should have looked up how to pronounce that name, but he fathered that guy two years after the flood. And Shem lived after he fathered that guy 500 years and he had other sons and daughters. So Shem lived 600 years. So already there we're seeing Right before the flood. Yeah, right, 950 is where Noah was. Okay, perfect. So his father lives to 950. Shem is living to 600, is where he's at. So already it's 300 years. Yeah, that's a third of your lifetime. That would be like if, you know, if what's the life expectancy today? Like basically 80, 75-ish. 75, 75. So it would be like living to 50. Instead of 75, uh, Shem lived after or sorry. Then, ah, oh my goodness. Arbashad. That's how I'm going to say his name. Uh, when Arbashad lived 35 years, he followed, he fathered Shayla and Arbashad lived after he fathered Shayla 403 years and he had other sons and daughters. Okay. So Arbashad lives 438 years. So, less than his father. And notice, when does he have kids? It's at 35. It's yeah. not at a hundred, like it was happening before. Uh, when Shayla lived 30 years, he follow, follow, fathered Eber. And Shayla lived after he fathered Eber 403 years, and he had other sons and daughters. When Eber lived had lived 34 years, he fathered Peleg. And after Eleg, or after Eber lived, he fathered Peleg 430 years. I'm just going to read the numbers here. So after that, it's at 30 and then living 209 years after that. So boom, you have a century chopped off right yeah. at that moment where they're living uh, to like 430 something. Now they're living, it, sorry, two centuries. It's, uh, yeah, he lives 239 years. After that, we get Ryu, who? Not like Street Fighter, unfortunately. It's oh, REU. Snap. I know. Uh, he fathers uh, Sarug at 32, and then he lives 270 years after that. So it seems like that's not just like a freak. Someone died young. Yeah, All of a, a sudden, 39. life expectancy is going way down. Uh, after Sarug lived, he followed Nahor to He and, uh, father Nahor 200 years, and he had other. Sorry, so he d- lived to 230, and then he fathers Terra. So Nahor f- has fathers Terra at 29. And then after that, he lives 119 years. So boom. 148. Yep. That's another nice, good work. He father- And then Terah is Abraham's father. So when Terah lived 70 years, he had fathered Abraham, Nahor, and Haran. So A, it's exceptional that Terah, Terah is actually the exception here when he has children at 70 years. Um, and then we have Abram is yep. after that. So I think what we're seeing here is that there is a very steep decline in in the amount of time that God is allowing humans to live and so because of that they're having children earlier and i think that a couple things here one it makes sense that as god is allowing the earth to be populated in order to create make it more sustainable he's going to allow for longer lifespans so that you're not just like quickly fathering and you're dying and dying at 30 or whatever it is so that that makes sense to me there um
1: i don't know if i ever thought about that
0: before yeah i think it's, it's just, a, i mean it's a really good point yeah i think it's just a mercy of god in that moment to start populating the earth you
1: prolong life and But he, again, and I think he reduces it to 100, 120 years.
0: But yeah, around with, Moses, with I think. Yeah. Was
1: it Moses?
0: Oh, no, yeah. Was Moses, yeah yeah, 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 yeah. Sorry. Uh, but, yeah, but yeah, that does come where it, it gets kind of capped down again. And so with Abram, uh, all of his ancestors that he would remember to, and again, we're going to his great, 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 great grandfather. They all had kids in their 30s, except for his father. His father is the lone exception there. Um, and so, and from that context, it does make sense that uh, Abram would think of himself in that way. And also I I would think that so much time has passed because again, we're talking, I should have actually added up the years, but the years from Abram to when the, um, the flood took place and the people were actually living to 900 years, that must've seemed like legends basically, because those people aren't around anymore. Those are just stories that were told about how old people were. But now, uh, the life expectancy isn't exactly what it is today, but it's much shorter than yeah. it was back then, and so that's I think the reason there is that mm-hmm. for the context of his day, Abram was actually old to be to be having children. He wasn't necessarily on death's doorstep like like someone who's a hundred today would be basically like you're not going to be surprised when they die. Um, but he, so he's he's kind of more middle ish aged at that point, mm-hmm. but he was definitely past the point of when people were having children. And we can assume that, um, that is not unique with Abram. We can assume that most people at this point are having children in kind of the semi-normal ages that we have children today, yeah. but they're just living a lot longer past that. So I don't know if you have anything you wanted to add there.
1: No, I think, I mean, there is, there is that sharp decline. I think you did a great job all of that. And I just, I mean, consider it this way. Like well, there are people who Today in 2023, if you were to tell them at age 40 they're having a baby, they're pregnant, right? They would freak out. Wait, what? And the risk in pregnancy in our day and age at 40 plus for most women, I think it's even late 30s, but there's there's potential risk for the baby for issues or problems or whatever. So um so on one hand, we it's it's you look at comparisons, it's not apples to apples for sure. But I think when it comes to like if someone who who in their mid to late forties hears they're pregnant for the you know to have a bit, it's like my whole life is changing. So, um, so we can understand to a degree that dynamic. Maybe it's not ninety nine because it's unrealistic for us today. But back then, it was it was a stark like, well, wait a minute, I'm I'm beyond the prime of my life which is the right time to have kids.
0: Yeah, it would be like if you told my mom who is in her early, f- early 50s, like, hey, by the way, you're going to have another kid. She, yeah, she'd laugh. Like, what are you talking Evan, you about? you're going to have a brother. She, yeah, boy, that'd be weird. But anyway, um, also fun fact, just because we're talking about, you know, family genealogies and people living a long time. John Tyler, the uh, I should have looked up what president he was, but he was the president of the United <laughs> oh, States in like, the, like one of the early ones before Lincoln. Uh, he has a grandson who's still alive. So there you go, because he had a wow. he had a kid at like eighty something, and then his son had a son at eighty something, and then that son is like eighty something. So John Dang. John Tyler's grandkid still still around. Well, with that, that wraps Uh, it up. I don't know how fun that was, but it's definitely a fact. Super fun fact. Sure. Uh, Well, that wraps it up for another episode of Let's Read the Bible. Um, As a reminder, we are a podcast of The Grove Church, but we're not the only resource of The Grove Church. You can find all of our other resources on our website, grove.church, under the media tab. And if this podcast has been a blessing to you and you would like to financially contribute to the ministry that The Grove Church does, you can also do that on our website. There's a give button in the upper right-hand corner. But hey, thank you all so much for listening.
1: Have a great day.